brothers. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. To the Outstanding Ohioan Show. Thank you for the Outstanding Ohio Show. Hosted by my daddy. Hosted by my daddy. Thank you for tuning in to the Outstanding Ohioan Show. This is episode 66. Uh, to clarify any confusion I had uh, during that conversation with Jason Purs, I said it was episode 57, and in a moment of dyslexia, uh, I thought my last episode was 56, not 65, so that was a confusion. Uh, got, that got pointed out to me, and it is episode 67. So thank you for listening, and hope you enjoy the program. Hello, thank you for tuning in to the Outstanding Ohioan Show. This is episode 57. Today, I have the extreme pleasure of talking with Jason Purs, who is a owner of Thriller BMX. He's an entrepreneur and an options trader, and he's got a very unique story that he's going to share with the audience today. Jason, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Ron. I really appreciate you reaching out and glad to be here. Uh, Jason, I know this is a topic that, well, it's a topic near and dear to your heart because I've heard you talk about it. Um, it's, it's new territory for this show. I, I don't know a lot about this, but unfortunately, because it's an epidemic, particularly in Ohio, I, you hear a lot about it on the news, uh, about addiction from prescribed medication. So I, I kind of want to go down that road. Um, but before we do that, can you give a little bit about, of your background, where you grew up? It's, it's a very interesting background and, um, and how you got involved in the sport of BMX. Yeah, uh, so basically I, I grew up, um, I was adopted by a awesome family, a uh, bunch of anti-war hippies. Uh, <laughs> uh, but all jokes aside, they were an amazing family, and uh, that's probably where I get some of my views from growing up watching things like George Carlin every day. Um, so basically I grew up playing a lot of sports, but I kind of – never really fell in love with any of them. And then I found bike riding and I always liked things like I played drums and I liked things that I could do by myself, um, real individual things that I could kind of say, I want to work on this as hard as I want to. And I'm not dependent on anybody else. It's probably because I, I'm an only child probably kind of brought that into, into play. I'm not sure, but I always liked sports like that. And then I, um, my uncle <coughs> worked for a guy that was a, professional BMX rider back in the eighties. And this was 1998 at the time. He had a very, very old bicycle. He was getting rid of it for 80 bucks. Uh, I put together about 80 bucks. I think I put together actually like 50 or 60 and my, my parents gave me the rest and I went and got the bike. And then I started riding. Um, and at the time I was, I could have went to a better high school. I could, I had a bunch of different opportunities from soccer at the time. And I decided I just wanted to ride my bike. Uh, I know at the time my parents were kind of like, man, you know, you're kind of throwing it away to for this kid's bicycle or whatever you're doing. But they, I went and rode and um, I ended up riding. I mean, I loved it so much. I was riding seven days a week. I was riding back and forth to school. I was riding after school. I would get rides to the skate park any which way I could. I'd stay there all night. Um, I, <laughs> I remember there was one time I, was riding at uh, Changrel Skate Park in North Ridgeville. And so my friends all said, oh, Jamie, Jamie Beswick and is coming later tonight, and he's a, one of the most famous BMX riders in, on the planet. He still is. And I, was, and I you know, called home and said, Mom, I'm sorry. I'm not coming home. I love you. <laughs> and you know, I didn't, it was a school night. I didn't get home until I, I had to be 13 or 14. I didn't get home till seven in the morning, but I mean, I was, I loved it. I was completely enthralled and with riding. And, um, as the years went on, I, I was very fortunate to become a professional bike rider. Um, I got to travel all over. I got to build ramps and ride in Iraq. Um, I've been to India. Uh, I've seen China. Um, I've, and, and other than that, I've been all over the United States and Canada on some of the craziest trips with some of the craziest stories uh, you could ever dream up and all, all because of riding a little kid's bike. Uh, and it was a lot of fun. So basically not what, what Ron? No, no, go ahead. Uh, so not too far after that, uh, I ended up getting hurt 
a bit uh, as a professional bike rider. You could you could probably guess that you have a tendency of getting hurt here and there. I was pretty uh, injury free most of the years through riding, and then all of a sudden I came up with a bunch of injuries. Um, and the worst one being stepping on a nail. That sounds funny uh, in comparison to I've ruptured my spleen. Um, I've blown out my knee three times, my ACL. Uh, I've my, torn my rotator cuff, uh, broken my wrist, broken my leg, um, tib and fib. Um, definitely broken my foot, my right foot more than a few times, uh, my hands, all types of stuff. But the worst injury was stepping on a nail. Um, I was at a contest. I ended up stepping on a nail and I, and went through, got home and, uh, went to sleep the night that night. And I woke up the next morning and my foot was like, felt like a brick. Uh, and I ended up having, uh, a staph infection in my foot and it was, uh, it was so bad. I ended up in the hospital for months and months and, and basically it, it ended up moving into my bone. I was on uh, morphine pretty much throughout that entire time staph infections are, are very, very terrible, terribly painful. Uh, at the time, I never even had a beer in my life. I didn't know anything about it. I'm, I am t- about 21 years old um, as all this is going on right now. And I still have never had a beer. But um, by the time I get off, I, you know, tell my doctor I'm feeling really funny and I'm throwing up and I'm sick. and I don't know what's wrong with me. And, you know, for the first time ever, I wanted to drink all the time. And I didn't, and I, I was just so ignorant to the entire subject that I did. I had no idea. And he just told me, he said, okay, I'm going to give me some more pills. Basically he gave me some more uh, Percocets after I was on morphine for so long. And then, then, then basically I, he gave me some more. And then after I started to run out, I started to look for him myself. Um, throughout, and then after that, I remember I, I blew out my knee and then I got a lot more painkillers. And then basically I ended up, I remember one night sitting there, uh, looking at the ceiling with, um, my ex-girlfriend and she looked at me and she goes, why are you awake? And, and I said, I don't know. I feel, I feel great right now. And that's kind of a moment that always sits out at me and stares at me and tells me that's, that's when I was addicted. Uh, that's when I, I felt like I needed it to be myself anymore. I needed needed drugs all the time. I needed something. Uh, I needed something to feel like Jason again. And that's where addiction is a very slippery slope. Uh, I think a lot of people don't realize that nobody nobody wants to be an addict. There's not one person in the world who you know thinks maybe I'm going to take these pills and I'll be fine and. You know, no, nobody, nobody says that one day you, you change or something in your brain shifts. And next thing you know, it you need something that you thought you'd never need. And then you are starting to do things that you thought you'd never do for that thing. Uh, it, it works on the uh, survival centers of your brain. So your brain's telling you, you need this to live and you're always fighting being sick all the time. So uh, when withdrawing from heroin is really, really bad, uh, you throw up all the time you're extremely sick. You don't sleep for weeks on end. It's, it's a miserable uh, thing to come off of. But through that, I ended up doing things that or I never thought I would do in my entire life. Um, I stole from my family. I did things that I, I, I didn't recognize myself anymore. Neither did my, my family or my mother, you know, uh, there was, <clears throat> you know, I sold every single thing I had. There was one day I came to my house and my mom was, standing in front of the stairs because she knew I was going to go to the basement because my drums were down there. And she looked at me and, and I looked at her and she said, you're, this is it. She's like, you're going to have to throw me down the stairs if you want these. And that was kind of a big wake up call for me because one, I would never do that. But two, that was the, the length I was at. Um, I was, I was just doing whatever I had to do to get drugs and I didn't care. And I, and I was, Figured any, and, and in my head, I figured I'd be dead in a year anyway, so it didn't matter. Um, so that was basically the absolute bottom for me. I ended up in jail around that time, ended up in rehabs. Um, I still didn't get sober at the time. It was kind of one day my, my mother looked at me and she didn't really, you know, recognize me anymore. She told me, you know, I brought her a lot of happiness in her life um, throughout all these years, but she's, I don't bring her any happiness anymore. And she's 
you know, she doesn't know what to do. And she's basically trying to stay alive and hoping that, you know, I, I wise up before she passes. And I was kind of, I don't know if it was the day after I, I got clean or if it was, you know, a couple of days after, but that was right around that time. It was around Thanksgiving, um, 2010. And that was when I got sober. And then after that, I, I cleaned up. Um, I started going to meetings, going to different places, meeting with other addicts, started riding again, not addicts as in we were both using together, ex-addicts, people who were clean, um, trying to stay sober. And I managed to stay sober till today. I'm still sober. Well, congratulations for that. That's an amazing recovery to overcome that. Thank you. Uh, if I speak out of turn, please let me know. Um, oh, feel free. A, a lot of people in, in in your situation and family members, they double down. And what I mean by that is we need the government to do more to protect people. We need the yes. government to stop this. You've taken a different path. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, can you Can you talk about why the government not only has failed to protect people from this, the government can't protect people from this and how they've also helped this epidemic take place. Yeah. Uh, wow. And, and that's, <laughs> that's a loaded question, right? That's, that's very loaded. But um, I, I know for myself being part of the reason why I'm not in many AA and AA groups anymore is because I was the only one not asking for harder time for addicts. Um, I I got kicked out of a meeting and my privileges were booked to speak because I was talking about um, uh, decriminalization and legalization and how and I'm bringing up statistics about how these places are working better by basically you know saying these aren't illegal anymore. And also when you create illegal drugs, like if you go to someplace like Amsterdam. There's no meth in Amsterdam. You know, they're not coming up with these new drugs that are, I mean, there's there's all types of synthetic heroin out there. There's something called Karoti. Um, it makes your skin, they call it Karoti because your skin starts to look like a crocodile. And it starts to scale off of you. Um, and you your bones start rotting out. I saw a kid who was missing most of his jaw. Um, your your bones rots, your brain rots, everything of, on your body rots because it's just chemicals basically eating you from the inside out. Um, there's there's uh, homemade fentanyl, there's meth, obviously. I mean, there's all of these things. So you, <clears throat> by I mean, you, by creating any sort of prohibition, you exacerbate the problem. Uh, just like when you subsidize something, you create you create a bigger problem every. Every war we've had on these, you know, fake things. We had the war on poverty uh, through Lyndon B. Johnson. And we have the war on drugs. I mean, both the war on poverty created more poverty. The war on drugs created more drugs. Uh, I mean, it's the most failed war of all time, and it's still going on. Um, it, it, speaking of which, you've probably seen this video. Have you ever seen the video of Ron Paul when he's, it's the eighties and I think he's with the libertarian party and he's on some TV show talking about, um, yeah, not doing, or, or a bunch of people, it's when the just say no movements going on through the Reagan administration. And he's basically arguing how the war on drugs is phony and bad. Have you ever seen this? I think so. I've, I've seen a lot of Ron Paul videos. So. Yeah. So, <laughs> so basically, you know, he, he, it's, it really shows you like nowadays, at least some people, uh, not in the addiction uh, sphere where um, AA and NA, but a lot of people now are starting to see the war on drugs being as phony as it is uh, kind of, you know, at, le- at the very least they, they think, you know, marijuana isn't as bad as it is. It is at the very least. And some people are going a little further at that time. I mean, people are yelling at him. They're bullying him off the stage. They're, you know, they're they're freaking out. They're making fun of him. They're talking about his, you know, his uh, balls shrinking. And like, I mean, they're making fun of Ron Paul on TV because he's saying that the war on drugs is phony. And you just you're watching this going. It's it's just it's horrific because people because dr- drugs are bad doesn't mean that you need the government to tell you not to do them. If you want to uh, not do something, just you say no. You don't need the government to say no for you. You don't, I mean, the government never, I mean, that's, that's the, 
part of my story because people will will take my story and go, okay, well, he was in jail and that made him, you know, get clean. Not at all. I, I, I met people who did better drugs in there. I knew people who did, um, I knew where to get drugs all the time after I got out of jail because I met tons of drug dealers and everything in there. I, I became worse when I came out of jail. And I think that's, that's the story for everybody. I don't know anybody who went to jail who said I came out of there a better person um, ever. So yeah, the, the government constantly just creates a bigger problem and exacerbates it over and over again as, as it goes on. And so it's, and, and when you're looking at it through history, you go, okay, there is prohibition. And then there's people basically who are the mob and underground gangsters running this racket, basically, not to mention people in government running the same racket, getting paid off by these big bosses for running, you know, uh, alcohol during prohibition. And then it moves on to Lucky Luciano at the end of it. The mob at the time was, was very, they were clean, cleaner than the new mob. So the new mob under Lucky Luciano, they wanted to sell heroin. They kind of wanted more of a dirty business. They didn't really care. They didn't really care about killing kids. They didn't care about whatever you had to do to get the job done. It was always the ends justified the means. Um, so Lucky Luciano, the, it was the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. He comes in there, he kills off all the old mob. And at the same time, I, I, I mean, I haven't, uh, Gene Connor uh, and a bunch of other people have talked about how he was basically protected to do all these jobs. And he kind of got through killing everybody. And then he started running in um, raw heroin through the docks. So basically during World War II, we didn't have any addicts in the United States. And, and that's a, a, a pretty astounding fact, but we really, I mean, it was very, very, very low. Granted, there wasn't, it wasn't zero because that's impossible, but it was very low. The, the quality of heroin or any other drug that you get in the United States was really bad. And it was because all the borders were shut down. And then basically, Lucky Luciano, they needed somebody to kind of lock down the docks and knew the mob could lock down the docks. And then basically the mob said, okay, we'll lock down the docks, but we're going to do what we got to do years. A couple of years go by the CIA comes in. CIA is also blocking them. Uh, there's then all these missions are going on in Sicily and all over uh, Europe during world war two. And you have Patton actually calling his uh, group lucky forward after lucky Luciano. And it's just this weird uh, collusion through this entire thing. So it's a, it's a pretty interesting story. It could, I'm kind of going off on a, a couple different angles, but I'm, I'm trying to answer the question. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's it's and, very loaded and uh, lots of layers. Well, yeah, and then the other layer is prescription drugs, yes. which is which is what started you down your road. Yes. And, yeah, it's prescription drugs are okay, but a plan is not. Yes. It's, uh, it's, it's mean, amazing. It's a very scary um, thing for for example, uh, this is something that's, that's that's always going to bother me. So, and this is also another reason why I I became such a staunch libertarian. Uh, my mother, when she was getting close to her death, my mother uh, smoked marijuana every night from the time she was I don't know whenever I was around till till she died actually. Um, and because she did this and I, I fully believe that she lived longer than the rest of her family because of this, because rest of her family lived to be under, they, none of them passed 40. She died at 55 and she only got really sick and she, she had muscular dystrophy and she only got really sick after she stopped smoking. And so that's, that's always been very odd to me. And so when we, we would talk about it and I said, you know, why don't you smoke anymore? Like you were saying, it made, it made you better. You've always said it helped with your pain. Now you're just taking on these painkillers and volumes that they're giving you. It's, it's not helping you. And she said, well, it's illegal. And, you know, things that are illegal are bad. And, you know, I'll go to, I'll go to hell or whatever, you know, if I do it. And, you know, so it's, it's very, um, it's very sad because when you don't, when you're not a person that really understands morality and you understand uh, your basic rights and you, and you understand that you, there's, there's a difference between illegal and immoral, you get caught in these 
paths sometimes that you, you're making choices that are very, very bad for yourself. And like in my mother's case, it probably killed her a little bit early, um, you know, and it's just because government. And so basically her pills were legal. Her plant was not. That's the end of it. Um, but yeah, and so I, now there's an interesting article coming out of Harvard. It was, a what was it, Barack? I think it was Obama, actually, during his um, administration. He said that he wanted to have a study done on the the opioid epidemic. And he had Harvard write a study on it. And Harvard kind of writes a study that not only is this epidemic one of the worst epidemics uh, in the the history of the world, but they also show that it's a lot of the time is to do with um, Oxycontin and showing that uh, this is another thing that most most people don't know about the story, and, and I'll tell it because it's it should be told a lot more. So when all of these drugs come out, they're they're they come out and they're supposed to be like um, getting people off of drugs. Uh, for example, heroin was to get it, it was supposed to be the safe alternative way to uh, use opium because they were having such a problem with so many people being addicted to it, especially after the Civil War. And then, obviously, heroin's extremely addictive, so that's a, that was a lie. It was, that's, this was also created by the Bayer um, company. And as those years go on, um, another family creates Oxycontin. And so they, these people patent Oxycontin, and Oxycontin's this thing that's supposed to be not abusable, and you can't get addicted to. It had this time-release coating on it, and there's no way to ever abuse it or it to be addictive. Um, basically, you know, it, it was just a lie. Uh, you could oxy oxycontin's basically it's straight heroin. You you uh, heroin is a powder. If you were to crush up oxycontin, it's literally the same powder, um, just a better, pure. Every time is the same exact thing. Um, so basically, now you're talking about you just you just created heroin and, and kind of put another name on it and said this is good for you it'll be fine this gets through and that that's honestly if i if i was to really examine when i started getting into harder drugs or when anybody or this this epidemic really happened i would blame one drug and it would be oxycontin because on the streets it was it was rampant it was everywhere you could get it anywhere it's something you could snort you could shoot you could you could eat it. You could do whatever you want with it. I mean, it was a very, very rampant drug. I mean, it's, I know to this then, and then what, when I just got off the street, um, this is, this is kind of interesting because I never thought about this. When I got off the street it was an Oxycontin. They changed the form of it to like, if you tried to grind it or melt it down, it kind of turned to glue. So you couldn't do that with it anymore. And at that point, that's when everybody started doing heroin. And I think to create prices and keep prices cheap, this is when carfentanil, um, which is a homemade version of fentanyl, and um, heroin started getting used a lot more. And this is where you see all the overdoses start spiking up because that was 2010, 2011. And that's at the same time as that happens, all these overdoses start spiking up. Um, and that's right when I got sober. Wow. Uh, it's funny as you were talking, because uh, we, we talked about this before we, we started the podcast, was you know, just like J.P. Morgan was on both sides of World War I profiting, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, the pharmaceutical companies are making these prescription drugs, and now they're making the prescription drugs to treat the prescription drug addiction. Can you talk oh, yeah. a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean that's that's what's always very um interesting to me and and sad because there's a lot of mothers um that are out there that get online and whenever I ha- I've tried to talk to them about hey your kid does not need to get off of heroin and get on suboxone you know you're basically substituting drugs and you're going to be on it for the rest of your life. And that's that's honestly the point of it, if I was to guess the point of the pharmaceutical drugs creating it. I mean, duh. It's very simple to see. But they they go, no, it's not like that. Shouldn't we be congratulating these people? These kids are alive. This is great. And 
No, that's uh, you're you're basically it's it's like methadone. Like so, methadone is basically heroin. Suboxone's basically they're all opiates. Um, they're the granted, their suboxone is a synthetic, but the, so is fentanyl. I mean, what's what's really the difference when you really break it down? So, and if also if you if if people don't believe me on suboxone being a drug, I always tell them others, why don't you take one and tell me you know if you feel funny, like what it makes you do. Because I, I can guarantee they'll they'll throw up and it'll be it'll be horrible because it's 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 the same thing, but basically they want you to get off this stuff and get onto this new thing, and they're going to keep that on you forever and you're going to be on this till the day you die. And the, a lot of the parents um, are very um, vicious towards me about it. They're constantly attacking me that I try to tell them this, but the problem is is that. It, why would any, the, the whole thing that's the worst part about being an addict isn't the fact that you could die. It isn't the fact that you're um, screwing people over, even though that's, that's right up there with what I'm going to say. It's the fact that you are, you are living for something. You have to get up every day and you got to do this and you got to find it and you got to get money for it. And you got to do this. So basically if you're, you get sober Instead of you getting sober and, you know, dealing with it all at once, you're on this pill now that you're just you're going to do for a while until you get better, uh, which never happens. The whole point of you being on Suboxone is to be on that for the rest of your life. And you're, you're basically substituting one addiction for another. And now you're, now you're getting up every day and you're taking one of these. And now you're going to the doctor every month to get a prescription. And you're doing that till the day you die, basically. Yeah, and then what what I also heard you talk about, Jason, was uh, on the flip side of that, what can cannabis do to help people in that situation? Yeah, I mean, um, I'm not a person who um, smokes myself personally, uh, and I, I, but also saying that I have absolutely no problem with anybody doing that. I know there's a ton of people who have done, um, I always forget the name of that, drug i just talked about it today let's hmm, drawing a blank the one um the one that the the fda is trying to ban right now um i i can't remember the name but basically there's there's that and there's marijuana and all these people are using these things and staying sober and to me, it's like, okay, well, why are why is the the government mad at trying to block these things? And to me, I, I think it's for one reason. It's because they're creating these new drugs that are they're supposed to be taking, and instead they're taking this other thing, and they're not making a cut on any of it. So they're mad about it. Not to mention, a lot of people don't put the aspect of the government in that, where they go, okay, well, you know, let's say you do okay, you hate the pharmaceutical companies, you know, so that's what, you know, most of the left-leaning people would say, yeah, the pharmaceutical companies are bad. It's like, no, not only are they they mad, but who's enforcing it? The government enforces it. And why does the government enforce it? It's because they make tax dollars off of that. So they're enforcing this and you have all these people um, getting sober off in in these weird methods using different drugs. I mean, there's even guys um, using MDMA and getting... Uh, helping PTSD victims and other and addictions and all types of stuff. So it's very uh, interesting times we're living in, but it seems like all these things are constantly getting blocked uh, and, and for no reason. Oh, there's a reason. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's definitely a reason, but you know, it's uh, they're, they're just getting, it's, it's very sad because, your people are getting better you know there's i'm i'm watching this and i'm seeing that there's people getting better you know and and i don't i don't if you're if you're better as you smoke marijuana at night i don't care um you know if you're if you're better is not hurting anybody else that that's great um but and honestly another part problem with na and na is a lot of people don't like to go because they're very strict about that so for example if i was to go to um aa not NA, NA is pretty straight down the line about all of it, but I was, if I was going to AA and I said, yeah, 
I take these pills my doctor gives me every night. They're, you know, Percocets now, but it's okay. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing heroin. And they'd be like, yay, and everybody would clap their hands, and you'd get your chip, and you'd go home. Um, <laughs> you know, that's, it's, it's insane. But if you told them, hey, I smoked a little weed last night, you'd be out of, you'd be out of the group. So it's, it's very, um, there, it's, it's like you, there is nothing for the person who, um, just does what they do, doing it well, getting better. Um, there, there's nothing for that person. And that's, that's kind of sad. So that's kind of what drew me away from it is so much, um, rigidity from, Hey, I, I basically have found all this research saying that we should uh, be more for legalization because, and also these places in, in, that are giving um, addicts clean rooms with clean needles. Um, it's bringing down the spread of, of uh, diseases. It's also giving them literature so they can go, you know, pay for a rehab center and find some place to go. There's also other ways for them to handle that if they can't afford. There's all these things going on, you know, that that uh, could we could be doing, but we're not doing because it's illegal. It's amazing to me how farmers selling raw milk can face prison time while companies like this have a drug that's approved. That it's 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 one of the if I mean I I could give you thousands of reasons right as you can about why government is bad, uh, but that's yeah. a big one. I mean just the that contradiction. There, there's no rational reason that anyone would think that, but yet that's what we're in right now, and it's amazing to me. It's terrible. I mean, I could, I could go on for years about that subject, but it's it's really crazy when you when you look at it through the lens of history and you see that basically there's people that are allowed to um, make money from this. There's people that are allowed to do this, that, and the other thing. And then there's the people that are not. And that's, and a lot of people would say, okay, well, that's capitalism. Like, no, that that's cronyism. Yes. Yeah. yeah, There's a, there's a huge difference between these things. Uh, I mean, and it's also the way the public is, is trained. You, you, they go through high school and college and they, they learn that, you know, the, okay, the, um, the great recession 2008 happens and the banks get bailed up. They learn that's capitalism, you know, capital, like then that that's, that's socialism. And, and now, you know, you're watching the same thing happen um, with Trump and tariffs and he's bailing out the, the farmers, you know? So basically that we're not in a capitalist society that that's socialism. That's, you know, that's a controlled source. That's very scary. Agreed. So on, on your journey, Jason, you're, you're, you're battling this addiction. What, at what point do you begin this educational journey towards libertarianism and our anarcho-capitalism, whatever, whatever you want to call it. I, I call it freedom and liberty. Yeah. Uh, what, how, how did you go down that path? Because we talked earlier about how a lot of people in your situation double down and, and want the government to do more. Yeah. Hmm. So growing up, um, I was always very interested in anarchism. Uh, I read Emma Goldman. Um, but what really kind of brought me into more of the anarcho-capitalist side and the libertarian side was Ayn Rand. Um, I got the book. I had a girlfriend, and she gave me the book The Fountainhead. Hmm. I saw um, that book behind you when we were on the video. Yeah, yeah, I have, I have, um, I still have all, all of her books. Uh, granted, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not a, I wouldn't call myself an objectivist, but yeah, her, her fiction novels are amazing. I, I can't, can't say enough about it. And I think uh, anybody that hasn't, that has bad opinions on, on Anne Rand haven't read The Fountainhead or, or Atlas Shrugged. Um, it's, yeah, at the very least, they're wonderfully written. Uh, they're great stories, and it really shows how a society that stifles growth and capitalism and what can what can happen to it, and also shows the ideal um, human through the fountainhead. Uh, do you know who Albert J. Nock is? Yes. Interesting tidbit about uh, the fountainhead. I, I just kind of found out that uh, was, I found this out probably a year ago that 
Albert J. Knock was kind of the character of Howard Rourke in The Fountainhead. Okay. Yeah, so that was kind of kind of interesting if you read his his book, uh, Enemy of the State. Uh, it's 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 kind of like you can you can see the um, how the the comparisons, but yeah. So basically, I read The Fountainhead. I, I start to go, okay, like this is this is how you a human, you know, like you can, you can be, you can be the capitalist and you can be this person who's fighting for good and doing good things for the world through self interest. It's not, and, and you're taught growing up, you know, collectivism, everything's a collective. You have to do this because it's better for the collective and the ends justify the means. And they're telling you all this stuff. And then, you know, for, for example, I picked up a, a book around this time, uh, Machiavelli's The Prince. And I read that and, you know, he's, he's this person that's supposedly this bad guy. He's basically the opposite of all these free market ideas is completely the ends justify the means. And, you know, if you gotta, if you gotta kill a hundred people to save a thousand, you do it. And, you know, then you start to, then I start to read about democracy and I, I start to go through the history of the founding fathers. And I think that's, one of the greatest things in my journey was kind of running through that and then running into Thomas Paine. Um, running into Thomas Paine was really the, I, and, I, and I fully believe that he was the writer of the Declaration of Independence. I completely believe that. I do not think it was a committee document. Um, not to mention Jefferson never really said anything about writing it until he was closer to death. Um, uh, you would think he would talk about that during his, uh, president running for president, but he never did mm-hmm. not to mention the word half in, um, in the declaration of independence, Jefferson being a very prolific writer, never used that word once Thomas Paine being a Quaker. He, uh, used that word very constantly. Uh, and there, there's a ton more reasons in that the original version also has written into it, uh, you know, about getting rid of a clause talking about slavery um, and kind of getting rid of that. And not that Jefferson wasn't torn in that spot, but I, while he was holding them, it's kind of odd that he did this. All these things there, I have about, I have about 20 or that we could talk, maybe we could talk about that another time, but I have about 20 or 30 things written down that makes that very uh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We could do that sometime. That'd, that'd be fun. But basically finding uh, Thomas Paine and how he's just this person, he's this, he's this immovable force in, in history, and people don't really know much about the guy. But um, there was basically, I, I found all these documents of uh, Washington and Jefferson, all these people basically talking about the king and, and saying, and Washington actually says, something along the lines of if I was to try to separate from England, I should be struck down and killed. Um, Jefferson's talking kindly about the King still basically up until the release of common sense, which the words declaration of independence is in there. And so it's kind of, that's kind of an interesting part of it, but I see this guy that's this immovable force and based on basically natural law and just going through this, this, complete rebuild of a society and how how we can do it how you know we basically between free trade and commerce and capitalism we can we can take out the greatest dynasty of all time um and we got away we did (laughs) you know we we ended up we ended up really getting through that and kind of seeing that was very um inspirational for me and and then walking uh as the years went on i got very interested in economics um, then I got, and then learning economics in the, in the way I was learning, it just didn't make any sense to me. I was completely confused and, and, uh, trying to use it to predict anything or, or create models using this math, these methods just didn't make any sense. And then I came across a guy named, uh, Ludwig von Mises. And then I got this, uh, you, you may have seen the book behind me. It's this massive, uh, <laughs> it's a massive book called, uh, Human Action. Yes, that's a big book. <laughs> so that, basically, I, I get that book and I'm kind of a little bit overwhelmed at the time because I'm new to Austrian and, and Mises, he talks like you know what he's talking about, like to anybody. So it's very, it's very advanced and it took me a long time to comprehend all of it because that was one of my first big books on, on uh, Austrian economics. Then I got to read uh, Rothbard's Man, Economy, and State, and that was, that was um, easier to grasp. 
reading America's Great Depression uh, from Rothbard, uh, Monetary History of the United States. All, all these books um, just kind of went through these, and I just got stuck and, and enthralled in Austrian economics and absolutely loved the, the idea of this completely free market and how it would work and how we how we can do it and what what's actually what causes the boom and bust cycles is it you know crazy capitalism or is it this thing called the federal reserve and is it dumping too much money in the money supply are we are we doing things to the market what what's fractional reserve banking have to do with it so you i started to find all these things out and i got very very interested in austrian economics and so through that i started going Okay, so Anne Rand was a person who thought that government needed to be there. I, I'm not sure why, but to me, after reading Rothbard and Mises and all these guys, you start to realize, well, if you don't need government for this, why do you need it for this? And if you don't need government for that, why do you need it for this? You know, So you go down that line, and then you're like, okay, well, you basically don't need it for anything. So at the time, you know, I'm, I'm – I'm, a libertarian and I'm an ANCAP and, and they definitely an Austrian ec economist and looking at all this and going, okay, well, how do we, how do we fix the war on drugs by creating, you know, a war on drugs for, you know, it's, it's, it's like having a, a war on a bottle, a water bottle, you know, like it's, 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 it's not real there. It's just, a, it's a facade. So now we're going moving forward and then we have a war on terror and then we have all these things. So it's basically, I'm looking at this entire uh, world and just seeing everything so different than what I thought. And there wasn't many people who were rewriting history in the right way and really going through it until I found um, people like Tom DiLorenzo and, and Rothbard. And, and these guys were really going through history, finding out the truth about these things, finding out Lincoln was different than what we thought. Um, not to mention, I, I learned that very easily because you could read his uh, his own books and his own writing. I mean, he talks very terribly about black people and slaves and all these things. And, and, you know, and then you start to learn about why succession's important. And, and you're, so you're learning, I'm learning all these things. And so I'm just so sold on this whole feeling of uh, libertarianism and, um, and being an anarchist and just completely trying to step away from anything government related. And at the same time, I'm hanging out with all of these people trying to get them thinking about like how we, how, if we're, if I'm going to be a part of this group and we're going to go around and talk to people about addiction and get, and try to get people better. How do we do that? If we're just bringing the government in to do something that all it does by doing that is creates more of every time, every time you bring the government into anything. So it gets worse. And so you explain this to these people and they don't they don't get it and the problem is too is that it's so apparent like when you really boil it down and you really look at what the problem with most things are in society it always comes back to the government but people don't think that people go around that and go okay well ron if we just got you know the right person in office everything would be fine um you know i, I don't i completely don't believe that at all i don't think that that makes any sense i think the whole government apparatus is a, is a problem so it's it's um i very 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 um into the idea of freedom um absolutely yeah yeah it's obvious and what, what i what i really believe in my heart of hearts and it, and it does take some effort but i think i think people in a majority are inclined towards libertarianism yeah uh but it, but but the ideas have to be presented and they have to be shared and, and you have to be open to it. Yeah. Um, and, and just asking questions because even such things you could ask, just well, you need the police. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but okay, it's, let's not argue. Let's not argue the fact for a moment that we need mm -hmm. police. Do we need only one service provider for the police? Because yeah. that's what we currently have. It it comes from a government entity. Mm -hmm. Could we could we do it privately? Could we could as a neighborhood? Could we pay for a private? I mean, there's when you start asking questions and say, well, what if we did it this way, or what if we did it this way? 
Yeah. I, I think people start being open to it, but it's the indoctrination is, is and I, and I, and I had it too. So mm-hmm. the indoctrination is, is there that, and you have to really ask questions to try to get around it. And, and yeah. And just, well, what about this? Well, what about this? And, and then it's, Oh, okay. Well, maybe. <laughs> and, and then, and then you, you just start trying to unpeel the onion a little bit and, yeah. and do it. It's very, it's, it's rough though. Um, for myself, I mean, I have a, cause I, I have a company and a lot of the people that work for me, um, and, um, they're, they're young. A lot of them are younger guys and they'll get interested in, you know, I'll, let's say I leave, a, I went to an FEE event. Um, I, I got to meet, uh, Lawrence Reed and, and hang out with him a couple of times. He is a oh, nice amazing amazing guy um yes. really really great guy great speaker great writer i got a i have a i had a bunch of his books from they give out like hundreds and hundreds of books to the event it's a, it's a great thing to uh donate to if any if anybody's out there listening and they're looking to donate to something that really does something for freedom and liberty that's that's the place but they basically went to um ashland university they put on a big event they brought tons of books to give away, and I put some of the books in the in the vehicles for the guys. And the guys started reading through them when they were bored, which I figured they would. And they started asking, you know, like what, you know, what is this? Uh, you know, there there were a lot of them were very confused about it until I kind of brought them into, do you know who John Taylor Gatto is? Yes, yes. So basically, that's an that's another part of of my story. That's probably one of one of the. Um, my transformation into becoming an entrepreneur um, definitely had a lot to do with him um, because I read, basically I didn't, I didn't think very much of myself. You know, I didn't, I never thought of myself as a very smart person. I never thought I could really do anything, especially own a business or you know, a couple of them or, or do anything. And then I basically start, I find out there's this guy and this, this guy has all these crazy ideas. He says, genius is as common as dirt. And I'm just like, that sounds insane. You know, that doesn't make any sense. Everybody's stupid. We're all stupid. You know, we're told that every day from the time we're born, (laughs) but he's, he goes out and he says this and he has these, he's bringing, um, you know, he has, he has a kid in his class who is, who's supposedly the dumb class and he's teaching them all how to do Shakespeare. And he's teaching, I mean, he's, he's doing these things that are just impossible if you were to ever ask any other teacher. And he, he was just such an amazing person. I started reading uh, the underground um, history of education and start to realize like why people are the way they are, why you can't talk to people, why you say, Hey, you know, why they react so viciously to you saying, well, we don't need the government for that. And they, they think you're insane. It's because you're, you wake up every day, you walk into the same place, the same place tells you, Hey, you need to, you need to believe this. And this is what we believe. And do you want to not be a part of the pack? You want to, okay, fine. Now you're cast out of the tribe. Um, you for believing what you want to believe i mean it's it's very crazy and then you you find out that okay where does the word kindergarten come from okay prussia why did we start to train our kids like prussian uh prussian kids it's because they basically got into a war with um napoleon and somehow they had you know bigger better army they had the prussian empire all these things and, and napoleon ends up um winning this and they go, well, what, why, you know, why aren't our soldiers really fighting? You know, I mean, at this time, you also got to remember, this is a lot of the time in war at this point, people were shooting over people's heads because they didn't want to kill each other. I mean, there, there was a lot of that. Granted, there's a lot of killing, don't get me wrong, but there was still some people like that. And so they were really looking how to create super soldiers, how to really make people hate other people. Um, so they started creating a system called kindergarten and you go into it and they teaches you and you get up every day, you say the pledge to the States, you, you, you become a status throughout this entire time in school and school basically is for a few reasons of separating you out from the pack is one of them. So if you're, you know, dumb or, or this, you need to be separated out from the pack. You need to also be indoctrinated into believing that the state is the way to do everything. And you need to also learn the history that they're going to tell you, which is, 
I mean, you, you, it's all bullshit. I mean, you have, you have kids, so you're, you're getting to see it. I get to see my stepkids and then it's, it's laughable, the stuff they teach them, you know, it's like, you're, you just wish, you know, that they would get some real uh, history, but that's not what they're teaching at any of the schools. Um, So it's, it's, it's really, really crazy. But John Taylor Gatto, he's basically telling everybody about i'm i'm lost track of it i got excited about john taylor gato steer me back yeah. it's, it's easy it's easy to do <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what was the what was the question we're on uh well you you were talking about how you had taken some of your staff to the fee event oh okay yeah so yeah. basically i got them in okay so that's what i'm talking about john taylor gato i got on the rampage sorry <laughs> <laughs> but john taylor gato basically was uh, i go okay well you got to read this guy so i had i had a kid who um he was he was from a very bad area um just didn't really have nothing in his entire life like his, his family was really really messed up his dad left him when he was five um, his mom was very, very poor. Uh, his, he had a family member who was addicted to heroin themselves, and he was taking care of his older family member like this. I mean, it was a, it was a very sad situation. But I, and he dropped out of, of the high school, and he just decided, you know, he's just going to probably end up being a drug dealer at some point because there's nothing else to do besides, you know, play basketball or be a drug dealer if you're from his area. <laughs> you know, I mean, he literally had this conversation with me, so it's kind of I'm laughing, but true so i give him uh john taylor gatto stuff and so he starts to go okay well this not to mention uh, richard grove put together um what is it called uh the ultimate history lesson with with john taylor gatto so i had him watch this yeah that 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 is an awesome awesome video yeah that's one of the one of the best videos i've ever uh gotten to see in my life and so he puts he watches this and you know you start to see the change and you start to realize you know he's not just some idiot person just because of what school may have said he was he's he's a person and people and you don't most of these people that have done amazing things with their lives they they haven't graduated high school uh, a lot of them didn't go to college and if they did they just did what what they wanted to do at college and and it doesn't that doesn't say who you are who you can be and you can learn on your own the most intelligent people i do know you know end up learning on their own whether they go to college or not they they usually end up their life is based around learning more and more and more and reading more and more so he starts to read and do all this stuff so it's it's very interesting to see that change but i feel i felt the same way when i started reading uh, his books as well because i started reading his books before that uh that interview ever came out right uh, I, I think I think you hit on something before. A great future episode that we could have is talk about Thomas Paine, and I'd also like to dive into your journey as an entrepreneur as That's, well. That'd um, be great. But but I, I kind of want to end on this because you know we we talked about kind of a dark period of your life and how you came out of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but something I I in in researching for this interview in this conversation with you, uh, the role BMX played in your life. And you talked about that briefly mm-hmm. uh, at the beginning and what it meant to you and, and how it, how it helped you thrive and become self-confident and, and, and feel like you had skills and abilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, how are you transferring that love of BMX today to children who were perhaps in your si- similar situation or just, children that you're working with today uh yeah so there's a couple different ways so i do um i do sponsor a lot of people um in the na program who are out of the na program as well um who are ex addicts um mainly heroin a couple alcoholics but i do sponsor them meaning that they i am their sole I meet with them. I'm their sole caregiver, I guess, in a way you could say. Uh, I meet with them as much as possible. They can call me anytime. Uh, they, most of them check in with me daily. So that that is one thing I do. Um, and, and that's kind of a thing. Uh, cause it, and that's the one thing that when we're talking about things like liberty and, and things like that is what really made sense to me is the only way you keep what you have 
is by giving it away. So it's, it's a selfish thing. It's not just me going, I need to give this to people and I'm great. And there's this altruistic person. It's, it keeps me sober to help them stay sober. Um, and so, but when I got sober, I kept thinking about, you know, what I was going to do. And so I started writing in shows again. And granted, writing was having something like that to do after you go through such a dark, hard period um, was amazing. I, I had, it, it was great. I had so many friends, uh, so many people in, in BMX were so, uh, for example, if I wanted to start riding prof- or going to professional events in football again, after being a heroin addict, I don't think they could ever happen. Um, but being a bike rider, I, everybody was cool. Everybody was understanding. There was nobody who said, Oh my God, you're just some shitty heroin addict. Get out of this room. You know, nobody ever said that. So that was always awesome. All my friends that I, that I knew from all the years of riding with them were always really happy to see me again. People were happy to, that I was just okay and, and out there. And it was, it was great. It was very well received. Um, but I really wanted to do something the the show team industry, the BMX industry was really rough. Um, you could do a show with a company one week. They didn't really care to keep anybody employed. They just kind of used you for what they needed and then you were out. Um, and at the same time, there's a lot of companies that weren't paying people. Um, they're ripping people off. Um, it was just a, it was just a very weird business model. And a lot of people, it was ran, the companies were all ran by people who really didn't know much about business. And if they did know a lot about business, they got out of it very quickly because it's not a, it's not a cash cow business by any means. Um, it granted the business can make money, um, but you're putting in a lot of work to do so. Um, so I wanted to start a company that was, going to take care of these people, uh, really give these guys a job, give these guys a chance uh, to to get paid consistently, not have to run around trying to scrimp between job and another job to, to keep going. So I decided I wanted to start my own team. Uh, <laughs> and so basically when you don't have much money and you start something, it's, it's, it's a, you get a little rough beginning. So I was, um, <laughs> I, I, I got my first ramp. It was a terrible piece of crap, very old ramp, got it from a, a great a great guy. I mean, the ramp was crap. The guy uh charged me what 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 it was worth. He, he you know, he gave me a very cheap deal for it. He's a great guy, uh, Ron Thomas. And so I got a ramp, I put it in my buddy's garage because I didn't have any place to put it. Um I had I had a friend who was doing videos with Ford and he said, Hey, I we, maybe we could hire you to do this video and you just got to sell your show to, you know, the, this person who runs the Ford dealerships. And I was like, okay. So I walked in there and told him how great we were at this time. I, I had a one, I had a tooth missing and I didn't have my own vehicle. I remember I had to, <laughs> I had to take, I had to take a taxi up there or something uh, and get a ride home for my, for my dad. Yeah. That's how, that's how broke I was at the time. Um, <laughs> So I walk in there and I have this this meeting and I t- and I convince them that <laughs> they're they're going to pay me normally, uh, but it's normal for them to come pick up my ramp for me, rent a trailer and a truck to tow it to where they want it, you know. And I mean that's just so abnormal, but they they somehow said okay, great, you know we're going to do that. So they come pick up the my stuff and we shoot this Ford commercial actually, and that's there's a couple things why that's great. One, it gave me some money. Um, so I got to buy more equipment <clears throat> Two, the video from it was great. So I got to actually have something to use for promotion. And then after that, I went out with, you know, toothless. And by that point I, I had a little bit of money. So I got a beat up purple minivan for a hundred bucks or so, um, that I was driving around with, 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 uh, a tooth missing and selling shows for a, quite a while. So, and one day I actually got all my teeth fixed. So, <laughs> nice. so that was a, it was a very, very interesting start, but I was very, um, I was very motivated to create something that was going to be better for everybody. Um, until this day, you know, like I just, my, my word is, is, is it, you know, if I tell you, I'm going to pay you, if I tell you we're going to be at a show, whatever I do, I just do to the best of my ability. And, and what, I mean, 
I've gotten in over my head a few times. One time I said we could jump cars. Uh, uh, we never did that before, but somebody asked me if we could. I didn't see why we couldn't. Um, I get to the events, put the ramp together to do it. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, it's all sketchy. And some, somehow, uh, I figured out by putting like two by fours between something and making this really sketchy setup, how to do it. Two weeks later, we're, or um, a year later, we're jumping over a Ferrari, uh, or what was that? No, that was a McLaren. So, I mean, there's a bunch of, bunch of weird, uh, learning curves in there and a bunch of really, uh, I think the best way I could put for myself is that I'm, I'm extremely with, with my business. I wouldn't say with everything, but it, with, my business, at the very least, I'm extremely headstrong, but I will always get the job done 110. percent well, That's outstanding. Uh, to wrap it up, Jason, how can people connect with you if they would like to talk to you about BMX or your your addiction story or talk about your businesses? Uh, yeah, uh, so I'm on uh, Facebook, Jason Purs. I'm on Twitter. Um, I think that's Jason Purs one one three eight. I'm on Instagram. Uh, I'm on Steemit as well. Um, and also, if you go on ThrillerBMX.com, you can find any of my information on the bottom of the page. And the contact me has the the other part of the page. The contact me the contact form actually doesn't just go to me, but there's actually my emails right on the bottom of it. And and people feel free, like you know, if anybody is an addict out there and you're looking for someone to talk to about it, feel free to contact me anytime. Uh, my door is always open. Well, thank you. If you could hold the line while I sign off here, yep. uh, Jason, it was a pleasure talking to you. Absolutely. Thank you for tuning Thanks into for the, me. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for tuning into the outstanding Ohioan show. This was episode 57 with Jason Purs. And we really hope you enjoyed this and look forward to having him on another episode uh, to talk about some of those follow-up items that we have in store. Thank you. Have a great day.